Well, here in Luke 14, we've got some parables about suppers, and W.A. Jordan, uh, a, a British poet, he, he said that, something to the effect, you can never really tell people what to do, you can only really tell them parables, and that, that is so true, and I think that is why Jesus chose parables as a means for teaching, rather than explicitly telling us you should have a huge urgency to uh, compel people to come into the gospel, etc. He tells parables. And I think here in Luke 14, there's a theme that runs throughout all the, the parables here and all the teaching of Jesus. They, all these uh, stories connect with each other. And we start off with uh, Jesus talking about verse 5, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit, and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? You've got the idea of urgency. And the RV says, slightly differently, Which of you shall have a son fallen into a well, and will not immediately draw him up? Now, wells aren't that wide, and only a small child could fall down one. You can imagine the tragic situation. Benny's fallen down the well, and everyone would go running. They wouldn't wait until Sabbath was over. There was an urgency to save that child, or even to save that, uh, that ox, uh, if you, you read it that way, that's fallen into the pit or into the well. And the point is urgency. And there is an urgency about the need to share the gospel with others. Remember in Luke 9, Jesus talks about the man whose father has died, and he says, look, just let me go bury him, which is the, the greatest obligation, really, of a Jewish male to bury his father. And burials were done, really, on the day of death, normally. And the man is sort of saying, look, I'll, for, I'll forgo the six days mourning. I'll come and follow you, but I've obviously got to go bury my father. And Jesus says, and maybe it's all a bit... Uh, parabolic, but he, he says, no, come and preach the gospel right now. It's as if he's saying, look, there is an urgency, and it cannot wait. And for one thing, we see there, if nothing else, the, the attitude that Jesus expects of us in going out and compelling people to come in. When the prodigal returns, Luke 15, 22, bring forth quickly, the RV says, bring forth quickly the best robe. In Luke 16, verse 6, the indebted man was told to sit down quickly and have his debt reduced. So there is an urgency in our going out into this world. And Jesus goes on really to develop this in the parable of the servants who've got to go out and compel people to come into the, the Great Supper. But he prefaces that parable with another parable about uh, eating and suppers. Uh, verse 8, he says, When you are invited to a wedding, don't sit in the highest room, but take the lowest room, because the Lord of the feast is going to come, this is the day of judgment, and perhaps you will be shamed. In fact, uh, not perhaps, for sure. If you take the highest room at the, seat, uh, at the feast, you are going to be shamed, and shame is the language of the rejected at the Day of Judgment. So then, it's absolutely imperative that we take the lowest seat. That's absolutely uh, crucial and, uh, and, and, and critical. Now, we have been invited to the Messianic Banquet, and yet that banquet which would invite you to see the kingdom as, where the Lord himself will come forth and serve us. 
that in embryo is going on in our ecclesial life now. And we are to take the lowest seat. And reading on in, in this chapter, as we have done these uh, parables uh, about the invitation to the, the beggars to come into the great feast, of course, Jesus intends us to connect with that and to say, yeah, look, I'm just a beggar. I really am a street person. I shouldn't be here. Who am I? What on earth am I doing here? And so, sure, I will naturally take the lowest place. And uh, the lowest seat is really, in one sense, means the furthest seat, implying that there's a whole load of people here who are much closer to Jesus than I am. I'll just take the lowest seat. That should be our attitude in ecclesial life. And, of course, the whole thing is epitomized when we sit down to break bread in memory of Jesus. That is the epitome of all this. And we ought to take the lowest seat. It would be absolutely unthinkable for the guy in the lowest seat, who, connecting with the later parable in this chapter, is a street person who's been dragged in off the street, um, compelled to come in when he's the, the handicapped and the, the weak and the sick and the morally untouchable. It would be unthinkable for him to say, or her to say, to the guy next to them, Hey you, get out of here. If you're going to take this uh, feast, I'm gone. The whole idea is that we are sitting there awed by his grace to me. To me who should not be here. And all the whole attitude about if she breaks bread at the meeting, whatever, I'm not coming. I'm out of here. I don't want to be part of this. I'm gone. I mean, this is serious. This is enough to rightly warrant condemnation. Now, I believe that God's grace is large enough that it even has a place for the self-righteous and the up themselves and, and the rest of them. But all the same, let us personally realize this whole thing, that we are called to the lowest place. That's what we should take. And many have been called and rejected it, but the point is we have responded and we take the lowest seat. Now, the idea of coming down from the highest seat and taking the lowest seat, this in the Septuagint is what you've got in Jeremiah 13, verse 18, about Zedekiah, who is really set up, I think, as a, as a, a, a type of the, of the rejected. That he comes down from the high seat, from his throne, and takes a low seat, the lowest seat. Now, that is how we should be realizing I should not be here, I should be condemned. And by utter grace, I am here. Now, if only we would each have this attitude, all friction and argument within the Ecclesia would be no more. And it's because of a lack of appreciation of God's grace to us and our own unworthiness is... That is the root of all these problems. And I think Jesus had in mind Proverbs 25, 6 and 7. Don't put forth yourself in the presence of the king and stand not in the place of great men. We are in the presence of the king, the king of the universe, of the cosmos, as we break bread. And don't put yourself forth in his presence. You're in the place of great men, great believers. And yet that is, of course, not how we tend to see the others who have been invited.
And Jesus goes on to say, verse 12, When you make a supper, don't call your friends or brethren, but when you make a feast, verse 13, call the poor, maimed, lame, and blind, those who cannot recompense you in this life. So how we have been called to the feast, we who are the beggars, we who are the maimed and blind, who are dragged in, as the later parable makes clear, uh, we are to reflect that in our dealings with others. Now, there's a thing. All these uh, people, the, the poor, maimed, lame and blind, who've been called, were all people who could not do anything. These were all people who could do no works, who could not work, but who <clears throat> depended for their existence, really, on, on the grace of others. That is what our response should be. And yet, when we do good works for others, and we don't get recognition, or as usually happens, no good deed goes unpunished, and we ourselves suffer for having done good to others, we don't like it. We don't like ingratitude. I did so much for him, for her, for them. They never even said thank you, and they act like they don't even know me. And then they did this, they did that to me. Okay, are you surprised? People, and all of us, uh, we feel a shock that we weren't recognized, that we weren't appreciated, that we didn't get any recognition. We didn't get a recompense. And yet this is the whole point that our response to God's grace is such that we will go out and do things for others not expecting any recompense on the basis that we realize that we ourselves cannot recompense God that we have been called by grace there is nothing we can do we can simply accept his grace now if we really feel that about ourselves, then I think we will not suffer from this sense of, I'm not appreciated, I've not been recompensed, I've not been recognized what I did. So this is what humbling ourselves is all about. He says this quite clearly there in verse 11, He that humbles himself shall be exalted, and of course that is what Jesus did. He humbled himself, this is the point of Philippians 2, the seven stages of his humiliation connected with the seven stages of his exaltation. So then, his pattern on the cross is to be ours. And, you know, Philippians 2 again, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus then. And so, this leads on to this next uh, parable about the the great feast that's made and the people are invited and they all, verse 18 with one consent begin to make excuses and the excuses that they give on the surface are quite reasonable even uh, the one who says um, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come is if he's saying look, you know in the law that someone was excused from military service if they'd got married the point is that people do not respond to the kingdom they will not be in the kingdom because of petty petty little daily life issues which somehow consumed them and that really is a challenge in itself because this is how life goes on day by day a leaking gutter uh, a dog that's pooed on the carpet 
you know these are the things that grab our attention and our emotion and our concern and our thoughts and grab our heart and yet all these things are nothing compared to the wonder of the fact that we have got to we've been called to live forever in God's kingdom and to dine with the Lord Jesus and so these people don't come and this was again there's an element of unreality here and I've said that the parables tend to work on the basis that they're sort of understandable stories to an extent they're all very homely and uh, imaginable but then there's something unreal and it's that thing that's unreal that element of unreality which signals the real issue it's incredible that nobody responded that all these people said no to an invitation And the way that Jesus says at the end of the parable, none of these people will eat of my supper, verse 24. I think that that implies that these guys thought, well, yeah, okay, well, yeah, we're not going to turn up, but uh, he'll probably send us uh, something from the supper, which was done if somebody really couldn't come to a great supper like this at the last minute. They were sent a mess of food from the the supper. Or they thought that, well, as the supper maybe went on for some time, uh, it could be several days, these kind of banquets, um, yeah, well, we'll come a bit later. And he's saying, no, you're not going to. You're not going to get anything. And I fear that this attitude of these people is very similar to ours. I'm caught up with life. I can't respond to the tug of Jesus on my heart to the invitation to the kingdom because I'm just caught up with what? with nonsense and really looking at all these uh, all these excuses they really were excuses I mean the first one is obvious I've bought a piece of ground and I've got to go and inspect it well you inspect land before you buy it and any purchase of property in the Middle East at that time was a very slow process you didn't buy land that you'd never you'd never checked And the same, verse 19, I've bought five yoke of oxen, I've got to go to prove them. No, they used to prove the oxen by ploughing up a a bit of land before you bought them. Not afterwards. These excuses have no no sort of um, merit to them, really, uh, at all. And the fact that the servant comes at supper time, verse 17, and says, come, for everything's now ready. The implication is that they had accepted the invitation, but when it actually came to it, they couldn't be bothered. The guy knew that this was the supper time, and it was the evening. And he says, oh, you know, I just got married today. No, you know, um, it, it doesn't have the ring of truth to it. And ultimately, every human excuse for not responding to the tug at our heart that the hope of the kingdom and the love of Jesus should should make upon us is just that. In the ultimate analysis of the day of judgment, it's all nonsense. So then, the the servant is told to to go and uh, bring in hither, verse 21, the poor, maimed, lame, and the blind. And the servant says, Lord, it's already done. Now again, there's an element of unreality. The servant was supposed to do what the Lord said but here this servant had taken the initiative and I think in all our work of preaching and all our service of the Lord 
we're not simply servants, as Jesus said, I called you friends, not servants. We get in the spirit of it, rather like an employee figures out what the boss really wants and he sees the, the way that is required for the business and if he's a good employee, he doesn't need to be told, do this, do that. He understands what the whole thing is. And so the servant comes back and says, verse 22, well, we've done that, but there's still room. And you come to a wonderful thing there, that there are more places in the kingdom of God than there are people willing to fill them. Now, how encouraging is that for us who at times wonder, will I really be there? There's more places there than people wanting to be there. And incidentally, that word for place, or room, it's the one in John 14, 2 and 3, where Jesus says that he was going to die on the cross to prepare a place for us in his Father's palatial mansion. It's so tragic that people don't want to know, when in one sense, all you've got to do is say yes. Now, those beggars that were invited, these people who were on the edge of town, he says, go into the highways and hedges, this is, you know, outside the town. And people lived outside the city limits for all kind of reasons. Could be that they were desperately poor. Could be also that they were seen as unclean. They were morally suspect. Outside all the towns of, uh, of Palestine, there were these kind of shifty communities of people like that. Fallen women and guys who'd done something wrong or people that were known to be sinners, etc., those sort of people. And the servants go to these people and say, look, come. And not all of them did. And why didn't they? These hungry, poor people. Hey, you want to come to the king's banquet? The only ones who would have said no were those who thought, no, there must be a catch. This, uh, this would be great, but I don't believe it. And in one sense, as I say, all you've got to do is say yes. Just believe it that this is for real, and God wants you in his kingdom. The point is, those people must have said, who did believe it, well, I accept there must be some truth in it. I've got nothing to lose. But it's only those who perceive that they have nothing to lose who will respond. And again, it comes down to our perception of our own sinfulness, and perception of our own desperation without Christ that no matter how wealthy you are, well-connected you are, whatever, you are desperate. And you're going to respond if you perceive that you have nothing to lose. And so, you could also reason from this that, as it were, the bar gets, gets lowered somewhat as time goes on. That these people who were invited, the first lot, yep, they invited them, but there's still space. So they basically grab anybody. And they were, that the servant was told to, to compel them to come in. Verse 23. And this idea of coming in, this is the um, same word as for the Samaritan bringing the that good as dead wounded man to the inn in Luke 10 verse, verse 34 Barnabas bringing in Paul to the apostles Acts 9:27. the other sheep who were brought in to the fold in John 10:16. so then we 
in one sense are these poor desperate people. In another sense we are the servants who are to go forth, and this is the language of the Great Commission, to go out and to compel people to come in, into God's house. And there's an urgency there that supper time is here. And I think that's an indication that we should live as if we are in the last generation. That supper time is here. It's all ready. And the only reason for delay is that not enough people have responded. And that's why Jesus said, when the gospel goes into all the world, then shall the end come. So, in our spreading of the gospel, we are, in that sense, hastening the coming of the Lord. Incidentally, in verse 15, um, it was while Jesus sat at meat... Um, somebody heard this and says, Wow, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells this parable in response to that. Somebody's saying, Wow, that would be cool to be in the kingdom. And I think what Jesus is saying is, Look, don't just think of how nice it will be for others in the kingdom, but visualize yourself there. And if you want to visualize yourself there, so it's not just about others, it's about you, you've got to realize that you are the desperate street person, the uh, the poor, blind, lame, etc., outside the city limits. It's about you. So don't just vaguely say, oh yeah, won't it be nice in the kingdom, but think of you. Focus it down to you. You can be there. There's that absolute possibility for you. That's the immediate context of him, him telling this parable. Now, as time goes on, I think uh, towards the second coming, we are to recognize that really the important thing is to bring people in. And it's almost as if he's saying, anybody, just get anybody in. Now, putting the parables of the weddings and suppers together, you get this picture. God made the wedding between Christ and us, but the invited guests didn't bother coming for trivial reasons. And the tramps and the beggars, they come to it, motivated initially, selfishly, by the thought of a free meal. And yet, in another sense, the bride, in other parables, also isn't ready. And so he delays to come to the wedding. And the all the virgins, the... Uh, wise and the foolish, they all sleep. When Paul says, in allusion to that, let us not sleep. But the truth is that they do. So they lose their enthusiasm and slip off to sleep and are saved only by grace. And eventually the wedding happens in another parable, uh, but the guests don't bother to turn up in a wedding garment, just in filthy rags. And even then, one of them pushes in and refuses to accept the, uh, the wedding garment. But this is the marriage of the Son of God. Putting all those things together, Jesus is saying, the whole thing's a mess. It really is a mess. And sometimes you look around at the body of Christ and you think, it's so dysfunctional, the whole thing is such a mess. And it is. And yet, putting these parables together, yeah, Jesus accepted that and he knew that and he foresaw it. But the point is, we are to be as the humble, quiet beggar who puts himself at the lowest seat, I shouldn't be here. Not like those who say, verse 18, they began to make excuse saying, I pray you please have me excused. Because that Greek word for excuse is the same word as reject. 
please reject me. That's what they're saying. It's by our attitude to that invitation to be in God's kingdom that we reject ourselves or accept. Now, there is an urgency, without any question then, to bring people in. And yet it is a mess. And I have worked for a number of years, Cindy and I have worked for a number of years with, with street people uh, here in Riga. And we used to get them coming along to, uh, to our church and we did feeding schemes and stuff like that. And we, we always gave them you know, the same old, same old uh, soup and stew and it was the same old stuff every time. And there was a time when we said, let's surprise people by grace. And we laid out the tables quite differently with nice cutlery and with serviettes. These people came in, about uh, 40 people. And uh, Cindy made a roast and uh, we really made this uh, amazing uh, meal. And I should have videoed it. As it happened, I, I, I didn't. I thought I, I'd take photos. And I got one or two photos of it. Um, but you know, I didn't have time to take photos because the whole thing turned into something absolutely incredible. We we put this food on the table and everyone was grabbing it and they started arguing with each other and they sort of eyeing up these lovely plates of food that were being brought and uh, the cutlery and some blokes like stealing the stealing the spoon because it's, he thinks it's uh, nice and some other blokes stuffing something in his pocket and. Oh, I mean, you know, the whole thing was a was a shambles, and it reminds me of these putting these parables together of the wedding and the feast and all that, and how it all goes so wrong, and people are not appreciative, and they start arguing with each other, and you know that is the body of Christ. The point is, we are to be like there was a couple of people at this thing that that we did that time who just sat there in awe at the whole thing and were very grateful and quiet and appreciative. And, you know, that should be us. It really should be. Um, not sitting there gossiping and saying, oh, yeah, he's, he's got some chicken legs in his, in his pocket and da-de-da. And you know what? She's a little bit drunk. You shouldn't have her in here. No, no, no. We should be awed by, by grace. And that is reflected in how we treat others. That the whole idea of the maimed and the, the lame being invited into the great feast. I mean, this is Mephibosheth, when David invites Mephibosheth, who's lame, to come to and sit at his table and eat with him. And I love the way that it says there that Mephibosheth's response was to bow. Now just imagine a lame man bowing. How awkward it must have been and how awkward he must have felt. And he says, I'm a dead dog from a family who hated you. Sort of, why me? But thank you. And this really is meant to be our, our response, even though the majority do not really accept it. So then we should feel something of the tragedy, of the way that people have rejected the invitation to the gospel. And feeling that tragedy, I think, inspires us to go out and compel people to come in for the sake of God and for the sake of his Son, and for the sake of his grace and his love. Looking at the Hebrew text of the record of Noah and the animals coming to him in Genesis 6 and 7, time is uh, gone, but um, it's interesting that 
you can put together that some of the animals came to Noah and some of them he had to, as it were, compel to come in. And that is the same, I think, with our preaching. And what we, of course, would all like is if the animals come to us, the people come to us. You put up a website and people read it and contact you and say, hey, that's great, I want to come to your church. That's the easy way. But there were a lot of animals that Noah had to go and sort of round up and compel them to come in. And we've been told here to be proactive, to not just put up your website and wait for people to come to you, but to actually go out there and try to bring people in, to be proactive in the whole thing. And, you know, the Master says, Jesus says, compel them to come in so that my house may be filled, verse 28. Implication is very much that there is a specific number of the redeemed that has to be made up and then the Lord will come. And he seems to be saying that they're coming in to the supper is dependent on you, the servants. And so we have a great work to do. And yet we also have an amazing response to make. And it's really to just say yes. And so as we break bread, we are sitting, as it were, in embryo at the messianic banquet. And our attitude now should be our attitude then. Not like those street people that Cindy and I had in that time, gossiping, arguing, grabbing food, or as in the parables of Jesus, arguing about the best place. No. Just sit there quietly, humbled and awed by God's grace. And it will all be not only as true as it was told you when the servant came and said, Hey, you, you want to come to the king's banquet? you who are sleeping under a hedge, it will be even more wonderful than we ever imagined.